Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Library Company of Philadelphia. I'm John Van Horn, the director, and I'm delighted to, to welcome you all this evening for a good program we're presenting in conjunction with our current exhibition on the Philadelphia Gothic. And I hope you've all had a chance to spend some time in the gallery or perhaps uh, after the talk you can do that. And on, on your seats, uh, we left the brochure uh, describing um, the exhibition for you. It was curated by uh, Neil Fitzgerald, an independent scholar who lives out in Phoenix, and our librarian, uh, James Green. So I think you'll enjoy seeing it. The exhibition seeks to bring some notoriety to the lives and careers of three somewhat obscure and very much underappreciated authors. In the late 18th century, Charles Brockton Brown had urbanized and Americanized the macabre Gothic literature of Europe. Brown's novels in turn influenced the generation of writers who followed, including two other uh, fellow Philadelphians, George Lepard and Robert Montgomery Byrd. And those are the three authors uh, whose work uh, we focus on principally in the exhibition. When Edgar Allan Poe arrived in Philadelphia in 1838, therefore, he found a literary tradition already awaiting him. And his writing career was set afire in this burgeoning genre of literature that we call the Philadelphia Gothic. Our authors introduced all sorts of bizarre and unsettling themes into their work, from somnambulism to ventriloquism, from serial killers to ghosts, and from Christian mysticism to the transmigration of souls. Edward Pettit will be giving a talk this evening tracing the connections between and among these four writers, how they reacted to each other's works, how each influenced the other, and how the Philadelphia Gothic, through its greatest practitioner, Edgar Allan Poe, became one of the most influential subgenres in American literary history. The Library Company is the perfect home for the Philadelphia Gothic exhibition and programs such as this, not only because we have a superb collection of early American literary texts, but also because the library company itself was an integral part of the city's literary culture in the first half of the 19th century. In fact, in many respects, this library embodied the spirit of Gothic Philadelphia. Uh, let me give you some instances. Uh, first, Charles Brockton Brown was a shareholder in the library company, and we acquired all of his novels as soon as they were published, uh, at least one of them the gift of the author himself. None of the other writers in the exhibition were members, but you did not have to be a shareholder uh, then or today uh, to use the library. And this was the only place in town, if you wanted, like Poe, to ponder weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore. Many got the characters frequented the library company in the old days. Uh, our librarian, John J. Smith, for example, was one of the founders of Laurel Hill Cemetery that consummately creepy place of eternal rest for so many outwardly upstanding Philadelphians, including another of our writers, Robert Montgomery Byrd. But the most Gothic of all 19th century Philadelphians was James Rush, the neurotic son of Dr. Benjamin Rush and the ill-matched husband of Phoebe Ridgway Rush, who was the flamboyant daughter of the fabulously rich merchant Jacob Ridgway. This trio was like a group of Charles Brockton Brown characters come to life. When Phoebe died from an excess of the good things in life, James bequeathed her fortune, which is where he got it, to the library company to fund a new building on the condition that her bones and his would be interred in the foundations. And this was the so-called Ridgeway Library Building on South Broad Street that's now the uh, high school for the creative and performing arts. 
when we moved to this site, we actually had to go to Orphan's Court to get permission to uh, get out of the terms of that rush bequest and use those funds to put up the current building here uh, in the 60s. Uh, and one of the aspects of this decree was that we had to reinter the, uh, the rushes at the new site. Uh, so this was all done in, in a very unusual fashion, and we even got the court's permission to take a peek into the casket of Phoebe Ann because she was reputed to have been buried with a, a great tiara and, and other of her fabulous jewels. Uh, unfortunately, as was related by our uh, late librarian, uh, Edwin Wolf II, they did look in the casket, uh, and there was Phoebe, but there was no tiara, and within seconds, everything turned to dust. Uh, so, unfortunately, that was the, the sad uh, denouement of that episode. However, we did bring them with us, and they are buried beneath the foyer of our building. So walk carefully when you're uh, leaving the building <laughs> this evening so you don't disturb her. So to get to our speaker, Ed Pettit, uh, he's known to many of you as the Philly Poe Guy. He is a freelance writer and book reviewer. The New York Times has called him a Poe Scholar, but he prefers to be known as a literary provocateur for reasons that we're all about to find out, I'm sure. He teaches writing at LaSalle University, sometimes pursues his graduate work at Lehigh University, and maintains the Bibliothecary blog site, including the Ed and Edgar blog, chronicling his, chronicling his adventures in the cult of Poe. Uh, he's a member of the National Book Critics Circle and the Mystery Writers of America. Uh, one final word before I turn the podium over to Ed. I did want to mention we have some uh, upcoming programs you might be interested in. Uh, there's information about some of them on your, your chairs. Uh, we have a program in March on the women of the Republican court. Uh, there's not this on your chair, but I'll mention it anyway. In early April, we have a conference called Incarceration Nation, Voices from the Early American Jail. Uh, in, we're doing that in collaboration with the McNeil Center for Early American Studies. And then we have a couple of other programs throughout uh, March and April. On March 6th, uh, our trustee, Carol Soltis, will be giving a talk about Charles Wilson Peel uh, down at the American Philosophical Society's Benjamin Franklin Hall. That's March 6th. Uh, on the 19th of March, we'll have a talk by Mark Egnall, a historian uh, who's just published a book about the economic origins of the Civil War. And then on April 15th, we'll have a talk by our uh, trustee and former president, Elizabeth McLean, who has recently published a book on Peter Collinson, the great uh, 18th century naturalist. So if you're on our list, you'll be getting further word about those events. Uh, please do send us your email and get on our, our e news distribution list. And uh, we'll hope to see you again at some of those events in the future. And now let me turn the podium over to Ed Pettit. Thank you all. Thanks for that nice introduction, Jeff. I'd like to start with a, uh, an invocation, uh, uh, in a sense, by Poe. This is uh, Poe's preface to his own uh, prose poem, Eureka, kind of the last major work that he wrote. And his preface says, To the few who love me and whom I love, to those who feel rather than those who think, to the dreamers and those who put faith in dreams as in the only realities. I offer this book of truths, not in its character of truth-teller, but for the beauty that abounds in its truth, constituting it true. What I hear propound is true, therefore it cannot die, or if by any, any means it be now trodden down 
so that it die, it will rise again to the life everlasting. I always like saying amen after that. It sounds so much like a prayer, kind of a prayer not for literal truth, but a prayer for literary truth. Uh, thanks so much to the library company for uh, having me talk tonight. Uh, thanks to library, librarian James Green for asking me. Thank you, John, for that. John Van Horn for the introduction. And thank you all for coming. Um, my work over the last few years, uh, the freelance work I've been doing, um, is, has been actually centering on these writers out in this uh, exhibition. Um, a few years ago, I wrote a piece on George Lepard for the Philadelphia City Paper. Uh, then, of course, I wrote the piece on Edgar Allan Poe for the City Paper, which got me a lot of attention. Um, last February, I had actually gotten the okay from uh, the city paper, the editor of the city paper, to write a piece on Robert Montgomery Byrd, uh, a cover story on him, and then that editor left and it never happened. But um, I had reviewed the new edition of uh, Shepherd Lee by Robert Montgomery Byrd that Christopher Luby edited. Um, and uh, then I was here last spring and I was reading George Lepard's works, all the works that are out in the case there. I was sitting at one of these tables reading those. Um, I'm reading George Lepard's Bible, where he wrote about his wedding and his children. And then I saw this exhibition here, and I thought, my God, someone has read my mind. These are, all, these are exactly the writers, the four writers, and Brockton Brown included, that I've been reading and studying for the last few years. And then the opening for the exhibition was October 29th, which, of course, you all know, is my birthday. So this exhibition, Philadelphia Gothic, was a gift just for me. Uh, little did I know that Neil Fitzgerald, who, who curated this, has been trying to get this up and running for many years now. Um, and uh, Chris Luby, who gave uh, the talk, The Paradox of Philadelphia Gothic, at the opening, who also edited the Shepard Lee novel I had reviewed, um, all along, I didn't know that I had some kindred spirits out there in, in Neil and, and Chris, and, um, and that was very nice to find them here that night, and I've been talking with them a lot now, and we're trying to do everything we can to perpetuate this idea of Philadelphia Gothic as a, as a, as a genre of literature. Uh, and I hope tonight I leave with some more kindred Philadelphia Gothic readers. I brought my Poe with me tonight. This is little Poe talisman. I have my, all my students in class that I have them touch in every class. <laughs> Tell them it's not Mojo, it's Pojo they get from it. <laughs> I open with when Poe last visited Philadelphia, he, um, he visited uh, George Lepard in his office. And George Lepard later wrote about it. And he wrote this. On a hot summer day, when the cholera was in the city, there came up four stairways into a printing office, a slender man, poorly clad and with but one shoe. There had been genius written on his broad forehead and the large lore of a pure but neglected intellect in his clear eyes, but he was poorly clad and he had but one shoe. He came stealthily upstairs as if conscious that the world had forsaken him and that he was an intruder anywhere. He sat quietly down near a table where a young man, an author, was writing. Then the poet, for the man shabbily clad was a poet, spoke to the author and told him he had no bread to eat, no place to sleep, not one friend in God's world. 
he besought the author not to forsake him. You are my last hope. If you fail me, I can do nothing but die. You may be sure that the words which he spoke and the voice in which he spoke them went straight home to the author's heart. He had not seen the poet for some time, but he remembered how that poet had once had a quiet home, lightened by the smile of a wife, how he, the author, had often sat by him and listened to him as he poured out free and unrestrained the full thought of his heart. And the heart of the author sickened within him to see a man like this in want of bread and in want of a bed to sleep upon. The author, of course, is George Lepard, and the poet is Poe. This was in uh, 1849. That was the year of Poe's death. After Poe had already moved away from Philadelphia for a few years. When Poe first arrived in Philadelphia, though, in 1838, he was greeted with actual poetic fanfare. Lambert Wilmer wrote an ode, uh, part of a series that was called Horace in Philadelphia, and it was published in the Saturday Evening Post, August 11, 1838. It was Ode 30 to Edgar A. Poe. In the poem, he called Poe a true genius who will only be recognized after he dies. Uh, he had a heavenly gifted mind that transcends the imbecility around him. And he concluded the, the ode, So thou, dear friend, shalt happily ride triumphant through the swelling tide with fame thy sinecure and guide. So may it be, though fortune now averts her face and heedless crowds to blocks like senseless pagans bow, yet time shall dissipate the clouds Dissolve the mist which merit shrouds, and fix the laurel on thy brow. Poe enters Philadelphia in 1838 triumphant, like some chariot-bound warrior of poetry. Uh, those who know me as the Philly Poe guy will know that I have been advocating for the recognition of Philadelphia as the literary center of Poe's writing career, uh, that he created most of his greatest works here, um, and while other cities may be more important to Poe's biography, uh, or more important to Edgar Allan Poe himself, he thought of other places more finely than Philadelphia, Philadelphia was the place that truly shaped his literary destiny. Philadelphia was the crucible for Poe's imaginative genius. And of course it was for Poe, and of course it was, <laughs> For Poe, because not only had he come to a city with a significant publishing industry, Philadelphia at the time, but also a city that already had its own unique literary tradition, Philadelphia Gothic. Let me define a couple terms here right off the bat, uh, a brief definition of what I mean by Gothic literature. And like all definitions of genre, it's tough because not all writers follow the rules. Uh, and beyond that, the rules are often never codified. Um, literary and artistic genres exist as rivers or maybe streams, constantly flowing, ever refreshed by new waters or rains. You can catch a portion of it in a bucket, but once you do, can you really say that what you've caught is that river? Is that still the genre? All you can do really is stand on the banks and describe what you see rolling past. So what will we see in a Gothic river? Perhaps uh, for cor corpses floating by. 
with some of the tropes of Gothic would be a haunted or ruined castle or mansion, dungeons, underground passages, labyrinths, dark, dark corridors, shadows, a beam of moonlight and the blackness, maybe a flickering candle, extreme landscapes like rugged mountains, thick forests or icy wastes, omens and ancestral curses, magic, supernatural manifestations or the suggestion of the supernatural. There's often a passion-driven, willful villain, hero, or villain. There's often a curious heroine with a tendency to faint and need to be rescued frequently. The Gothic creates feelings of gloom, mystery, and suspense, and tends to the dramatic and the sensational, like incest and diabolism and nameless terrors, often the worst of all. And most of all, this is a European tradition. Often fueled by class division and religious superstition, the aristocratic preying upon the common people, corrupt clergy preying upon their innocent communicants. So how on earth did a genre with these European features survive across the ocean in America and survive in a new country dedicated to liberty and democracy? Look no further than our most famous icon of liberty, reverently housed right here in Philadelphia, the Liberty Bell. What's the most significant feature of the Liberty Bell? It's crack. American Gothic resides in the crack of the Liberty Bell. The flaw inherent in its very design. The waters of the European Gothic stream cooled the metal that made our bell. But the temperatures were out of sync, or the metal used wasn't quite resilient enough, so it cracked. And we've honored that flaw as a symbol of our own political and national existence. Just as the river of European Gothic runs with its own European obsessions and fears, American Gothic represents the nightmares of the new America, the monsters that lurk beneath the surface of our own river, a branch of the great Gothic literature that flows through all literature. Christopher Luby in October gave a wide-ranging definition of this new Gothic in his talk, and I don't want to rehash a lot of what he said so well, what he said so well anyway. So I'd refer you to listen to the podcast uh, from last October. It's, it's really fantastic. Um, but first of all, as an immigrant nation, America inherited the nightmares of its ancestors anyway, whether they be European or African or any other nation from which our peoples originally came from. American Gothic is an affirmation of one of the tenets of European Gothic, that the sins of the father will be visited upon the son. Or as Bruce Springsteen once so eloquently phrased, Adam raised a cane. One important way, though, in which American Gothic differs is, as Frederick Frank, a literary critic once said, in the individual potential for evil in a new society. Just as we citizens have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, American Gothic tells us that we also have the potential for death, murder, and the pursuit of destruction. American Gothic is about the criminal element. European Gothic is haunted by specters and mad monks. In America, we are at the mercy of serial killers. So if that is the American Gothic, what is Philadelphia Gothic? First, if we realize that Charles Brockton Brown invents the American Gothic, I want to, let me say, 
Charles Brockton Brown's death day is February 21st. Isn't it two days in 1810? So, and just next year will be a bicentennial of his death day. So maybe we can revisit all this bicentennial stuff then. But if, if we realize that Charles Brockton Brown invents the American Gothic, or is at least its first practitioner, and if Gothic, his Gothic is set in Philadelphia and its immediate environs, peopled with Philadelphians, then all the American Gothic, and I'll make a claim that most American horror literature and film later, all American Gothic springs from the murky waters of Philadelphia. Perhaps the Schuylkill. With this ominous sounding last syllable, Schuylkill. Perhaps the Schuylkill is our Gothic river. And, and again, I could go on about what defines Philadelphia Gothic, and, but I, I think that Christopher Luby did that very well. I'll mention a couple things. I'll just quote Christopher Luby. Um, because he did it so well. Philadelphia Gothic, he says, gives us public disorder, spatial disorientation, dead ends and back alleys, dark hidden courtyards, dank cellars and locked closets. It deals in concealment, secrecy, enclosure, against the Franklinian ethos of hard work, saving, investment, and prosperity. Philadelphia Gothic dramatizes theft, gambling, and financial chicanery. Philadelphia Gothic chooses to focus on filth and epidemic disease, alcoholic deterioration, squalid drug dens, and wasting starvation. All that fun stuff. Luby <laughs> didn't say that. That was me. I would add that all this adds up to make Philadelphia Gothic urban. It's all the tropes of European Gothic, but urbanized. All four of the authors in this exhibition, Charles Brockton Brown, Robert Montgomery Byrd, George Lepard, and Edgar Allan Poe, accentuate this urban Gothic aspect. It exists in the darkened, deserted streets of a plague-infested city in Brockton Brown's novel, Arthur Mervyn. In George Lepard's novel, Quaker City, Lepard takes all the conventions of the medieval Gothic novel, a decaying castle mansion chock full of secret labyrinthine passages, trap doors, and underground pits for prisoners, cackling tortures, torturers, sorcerers, innocent damsels about to be ravished, evil monks, and urbanizes them, dropping them smack down in the middle of 1842 Philadelphia. But let us return to our Gothic River. In Lepard's Quaker City, his monstrous hero-villain devil bug has a dream vision, a waking dream of the apocalypse. He envisions the city of Philadelphia in the far-off future year of 1950, in which he stands in the ruins of Independence Hall. A monstrous royal palace now rises next to it. The greed, corruption, and vice have slowly created a Sodom of Philadelphia. And here's a bit from Lepard's novel. As Devilbug, standing on the roof of the palace, gazed round in wonder, the river became the scene of a strange and awful spectacle. The waves were suddenly crowded by a fleet of coffins, tossed wildly to and fro, each coffin borne upon the surface of the waters like a boat, with the foam dashing over its dull, dark outlines, and in each coffin sat a corpse, with the death shroud enfolding its limbs and waving along the blackness of the night, while it urged its grave boat merrily over the waters, using a thigh bone for an oar. 
And at the foot of every coffin, which served for the prow of the unearthly boat, was a lurid light burning in a skull and flinging its radiance around over the waters, over the faces of the dead, and over the fluttering folds of each death shroud. Ten thousand coffins, each bearing its boatman in the form of a shrouded corpse, floated on the surging waves of the river, ten thousand lurid lights, each flaring from the eyeless sockets of a skull, gave a terrible radiance to the scene, and the river, as far as the eye could see, was crowded by this fleet of grave boats with their shrouded oarsmen, tossing the water aside with a skeleton bone for an oar. The corpses then rise in them, and they point their accusing fingers at the city before clashing in a thunderous naval bone battle. Here's Lepard again. Then an unearthly peal of music broke upon the air, the music of the hollow skull echoing to the blow of the skeleton bone from side to side. It swelled. It rose clanking to the heavens. It deafened the ear of night with its infernal din. Nearer and nearer to each other, the opposing lines of coffins drew. Faster and faster they glided over the waves. Wilder and more terrible swelled the music of the skeleton bone and the skull. Corpse fighting with corpse, dead throttling dead, coffin meeting with coffin. I was supposed to stop before then, but I skipped it. <laughs> and my lines mark here don't read that much, but it's just, you know, exciting to read. That's our American Gothic River on the banks of Philadelphia. And it's precisely that river that Edgar Allan Poe finds when he comes to Philadelphia in 1838. A literary tradition founded by Charles Brockton Brown had been growing here for years. Countless American Gothic works are associated with Philadelphia, either set in and around Philadelphia or written by Philadelphians or published in Philadelphia. It seems at times it becomes a conceit for some of the authors in the late in the early 19th century to say by a Philadelphian when writing a sensation or gothic novel to give it some cachet as a gothic novel. Even before Brockton Brown, Phil Preneau was writing poetry, some of it gothic in theme, like his The House of Night. Uh, Brown's contemporary Susanna Rowson publishes her The Inquisitor of the Invisible Rambler in Philadelphia in 1793. There's a whole list of them. 1804, Journey to Philadelphia by Adelio. 1806, Adventures in a Castle, an original story written by a citizen of Philadelphia. 1808, The Secret History or the Horrors of St. Domingo, published in Philadelphia. I think that one's in the case out here. 1816, Adelaide by a Lady of Philadelphia. One Gothic novel of 1811 called Alonzo and Melissa, or The Unfeeling Father, even features a cameo appearance by the quintessential Philadelphian Benjamin Franklin, aiding the hero after he's shipwrecked, although it's set during the time Franklin is in Paris, so this is a traditional European Gothic novel. Um, the Executioner, the man who burnt the Reverend John Rogers, published in Philadelphia. The Castle of Altenheim, or the Mysterious Monk, published in Philadelphia. Many of E.D.E.N. Southworth's Gothic novels, The Curse of Clifton, Miriam the Avenger, The Haunted Homestead, The Mystery of Dark Hollow. These are all published in Philadelphia in the, in the 1850s to the 1870s. And, of course, most, if not all, of Brockton Brown, Montgomery Bird, George Lepard, and Poe's works are published in Philadelphia. 
even though when the works are just traditional European Gothic tales, not American, many of them are still published in Philadelphia. Philly, as a publishing center of the young country, is the focal point for all things literary Gothic, whether American or European. Americans were writing, publishing, Philadelphians, I'm sorry, were writing, publishing, and reading lots of Gothic. While the New England Publishing Center was developing transcendentalism, which in the words of Emerson is the perpetual openness of the human mind to new influx of light and power, the publishing culture of Philadelphia was peering into the shadowed alleyways of our collective consciousness. The Philadelphia that Edgar Allan Poe came to was not the ideal city of William Penn's heart. The historian Gary, Na Gary Nash has written that antebellum Philadelphia was the most violent era of the city's history. The first general strike in American labor history occurs in 1835. An economic depression grips the city from 1837 to 1842. In 1842, the weavers of Philadelphia struck and battled in the streets of Kensington. One of the city's newspapers called these dire labor conditions the awful doctrine of blood and bread. Post-Philadelphia was a city of race and labor riots, poverty and crime. A stinking effluvia of corruption and decadence rolled down its streets, dimming the lights, stifling its development. Race riots between Philadelphia's free African-American community and their main labor competition, the growing Irish immigrant population, happened on a nearly yearly basis between 1834 and 1844. Although Poe left just before the deadly, deadliest riot in the city in the fall of 1844, while living here, he was a daily witness to violent social unrest. And remember, there was not yet what we would even recognize as an organized police force. Even the fire companies were generally composed of rival ethnic gangs, more likely to battle their rivals in the bloody streets while, bu while buildings burned rather than fight the fires. Some days, even weeks, chaos reigned. I just came across an account in the Philadelphia Gazette when I was here last spring reading on January 20th, 1841. The little news item was entitled, Youthful Incendiaries. And, in, and the story was two juveniles were arrested for setting a building ablaze, and when asked why they did it, they said because they wanted to see the rival fire companies brawl in the street. Most murders went unsolved. Criminal activity plagued the streets. Grave robbers patrolled the cemeteries at night. Prisons stonily dominated neighborhoods like Moya Mensing and Fairmount with their grim walls. Poe, Edgar Allan Poe, if we define him by his macabre works, felt right at home here. Could he have experienced all this in other cities? He, was, he most certainly could have, but it was in Philadelphia that he did and that he wrote most about these kinds of experiences. Before living in Philadelphia, Poe's horror tales were more grounded in a European Gothicism. Post-Philadelphia, Poe's personal problems, his erratic behavior, his sporadic drunkenness, poverty, his wife's illness and death, those things take over his life, diminishing his creative output until his own early death, a mere five years after he left Philadelphia. But while in Philadelphia, while living and writing and publishing in the tradition of Philadelphia Gothic, Poe's works undergo a transformation. 
this very urban nightmare that Poe witnesses infects his greatest works. The chaos of the streets become the disorder of the minds of his madmen and madwomen. Riotous gangs become the deadly misrule and panic that conspire to wrench the veil from life and reveal the loathsome, decaying mortality that lurks beneath the mask of our lives. The plague of death stalks us. We can do nothing. Barring the doors will not keep it at bay. We are at the mercy of the nightmare that daily burdens the people of the city. Philadelphia is the crucible for Poe's imaginative genius. When Poe's stories, when he first arrives here, when he first is writing in Philadelphia, he writes stories like Lygia and Fall of the House of Usher. These stories still exist in the European Gothic world with ancestral curses and predatory spirits haunting the living. But with William Wilson, Poe turns the corner. William Wilson is haunted by himself, by what Frederick Frank again called that individual potential for evil in a new society. I won't give away the plot of William Wilson. You should read it. <laughs> then Poe, following in the footsteps of Brockton Brown, urbanizes his Gothic. A story like Man of the Crowd. Although Poe sets this story in London, Philadelphia must have provided a template for it. I was delighted that Christopher Luby also noticed this when the same observation when he gave his talk in October. The increasingly paranoid, phantasmagoric pursuit of a stranger through the labyrinthine streets of a city are a tour of Philadelphia in Man of the Crowd. They're a tour of Philadelphia at its chaotic worst, a gaslit scene of squalor and decay. Here's from Poe's Man of the Crowd. It was the most noisome quarter of London, where everything wore the worst impress of the most deplorable poverty and of the most desperate crime. By the dim light of an accidental lamp, tall, antique, worm-eaten, wooden tenements were seen tottering to their fall in directions so many and capricious that scarce the semblance of a passage was discernible between them. The paving stones lay at random, displaced from their beds by the rankly growing grass, horrible filth festered in the damned up gutters, the whole atmosphere teemed with desolation. Murders in the Rue Morgue, Poe writes then. The Black Cat, the Mystery of Marie Roger, the Telltale Heart. Poe writes about chaos and mayhem that overtake individuals in a city. He may not set these tales in Philadelphia, but while he's writing, he's certainly seeing their plots enacted around him. And each of the authors in this exhibition do that. They all knew and read each other's works. Poe and Lepard became friends. Poe corresponded with Byrd and solicited work from him even before he arrived in Philadelphia, when Poe worked for the Southern Literary Messenger, he wrote to Byrd and said, would you send me some things? And Byrd did. Uh, Poe reviewed uh, Byrd's uh, Shepherd Lee, um, and uh, Poe also uh, included uh, Robert Montgomery Byrd's signature in a series of autography that he had put together in which Poe contemplated the character of certain writers by their handwritten signatures. Uh, Poe, Lepard, and Byrd all read Brockton Brown, 
While Byrd may have been slightly critical of Brown, Lepard dedicated his great Gothic novel, The Quaker City, to him, and Poe several times wrote of Brockton Brown as the first of America's great novelists. He had even planned a seri- an essay series on American novelists, and Brown was supposed to be the focus of the first part. Sadly, he only wrote the introduction to that and never continued the series. But all of these writers participated in a genre we ought to recognize not just as American Gothic or even urban Gothic, but as Philadelphia Gothic. Let me return to George Lepard's account of Poe's last visit to Philadelphia. Poe has shown up with one shoe in Lepard's office and says to Lepard, tell them that I am sick, that I haven't a bed to sleep upon, that I only want enough to get me out of Philadelphia. Tell them plainly, for God's sake, don't fail me. You're my last hope. The author went out, sick himself and poor. He went from door to door, but everybody was out of town. It was a wretched day. Cholera bulletins upon every newspaper door and a hot sun pouring down over half-deserted streets. The author was taken sick and had just strength enough to get to his own home. Next morning, just after daybreak, he hurried down to the printing office and found the poet still there, sitting at the table in one corner, his head between his hands. I thought you had deserted me, he said. The tears came into his eyes. This was strange, for he was not the man for that kind of thing. Then he told him how he had waited there the day before, how he had paced those streets of Philadelphia, which to the poor are as full of hope as the hottest and dreariest piece of sand in Sahara, how the very heart was broken within him. And now you're my last hope, Poe said. Get me out of Philadelphia. For God's sake, do it. I'm heartsick for Virginia. I can only feel my boot. If I can only feel my boot upon Virginian sod, I'll be a new man. It is a pleasure for me to go out into her woods, to lay myself upon her soil, even to breathe her air. These words, the manner in which they were spoken, made a deep impression. They were the words of a man of genius, hunted by the world, trampled upon by the men whom he had loaded with favors and disappointed in every turn of life. Poe spent the day with us. He talked of the time when we had first met in his quiet home in 7th Street, Philadelphia, when it was made happy by the presence of his wife, a pure and beautiful woman. He talked of his last book, Eureka, well-named a prose poem, and spoke much of projects for the future. When we parted from him in the cars, he held our hand for a long time and seemed loath to leave us. There was in his voice, look, and manner something of a presentiment that this strange and stormy life was nearly at its close. Poe's reluctant farewell to Philadelphia Gothic is what Lepard's writing about it here. At once, Poe begs to leave this infernal city, and yet Lepard notices his reluctance when they say goodbye at the train. Poe needs to leave. The literary culture of Philadelphia that he immersed himself in for six years is too much for him. Although he has already spent a few years away from it, as soon as he returns, however briefly, his imagination is overwhelmed. The place that inspired his most macabre tales is too much for him. Before visiting Lepard, he has already been briefly imprisoned in Moyamensing, 
for either vagrancy or drunkenness. He has met one friend and confessed paranoid delusions and shaved off his mustache to disguise himself because some men were after him. He has suffered some sort of nervous breakdown when he came back to Philadelphia. Poe's last visit to this city was turbulent and nightmarish. Perhaps Philadelphia Gothic, the crucible of his greatest works, now burned too hot for him. He needs the greener pastures of his youth to recover. And recover he did, only to meet his own premature demise in Baltimore, or at the hands of Baltimore, on his way back north. We even know Poe was returning to Philly to edit someone's book of poetry, and there's a strong possibility that he would have resettled in Philadelphia to publish his new literary journal, perhaps after a refreshing vacation and a rich widow on his arm, he would have been able to plunge back into the depths of Philadelphia Gothic once again. A post friend, George Lepard, the scholar Frederick Frank, has also said, written that Lepard recognized the city as the place of isolation, loneliness, want, fear, and predatory struggle, the cosmopolitan equivalent of the sinister spaces of older Gothic fiction. And David Reynolds said, because Lepard's overriding goal is to replicate in fiction a society he regards as nightmarish and depraved, he creates an entire nightmare world that is always threatening to destroy ordinary perceptions of objective surroundings. And it is that very tradition that continues today that has influenced almost all of American horror and literature and film. Stephen King's books and Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger from the movies, they're all descendants of the first American Gothic, which we know is Philadelphia Gothic. Many other writers, styles, and genres have come to influence what passes for horror nowadays, but the main current, the main river, is still the flaming channel of literature known as Philadelphia Gothic. Thank you.